Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. And sometimes a regular ordinary guy gets to have his name go down in history in a very big way. And it happened to a guy named Dick Heller who happened to be working in security in a government building in Washington, D.C., when he sued the government of Washington, D.C. over a law that prevented him from legally owning a handgun. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Dick Heller won. It was District of Columbia versus Heller, and it was the landmark gun rights case of all time, where the Supreme Court ruled only in 2008 that the Constitution guaranteed to every American a personal right to bear arms. And if it is that obvious, then perhaps people who aren't happy with how that has turned out might want to argue that perhaps that right never should have been put into the Constitution in the first place. And what a debate that would be, as we are about to find out. Yes or no to this statement. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, divided on this motion. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience in New York City votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion, trying to convince you that the right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Let's welcome first, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz. And Alan, uh, you're a professor at at Harvard Law School. You've played parts in these cases, the Pentagon Papers, Bush versus Gore, the WikiLeaks investigation, the defense of O.J. Simpson. Um, But uh, on the back cover of your recent memoir, you just came out with a memoir called Taking the Stand. You quote Noam Chomsky, who says, Dershowitz is not very bright and strongly opposed to civil liberties. And you quote him. So you're giving the whole thing away to the other side here? Well, my high school teachers said the same thing. (laughs) And so I think you guys have to give me a little break. These guys are all smarter than I am. So here I am. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz, give him a break. And Alan, your partner in this debate is? My partner in this debate is the very, very distinguished professor, uh, Sandy Levinson, who's just written his own great book. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandy Levinson. (laughs) Sandy's great book is called Framed America's 51 Constitutions and the Crisis of Governance. He's a professor of law uh, at the University of Texas and a professor of government there, too. In 1989, Sandy, uh, you wrote an article in the Yale Law Journal that is really credited with reshaping the entire debate over gun rights in this country, which was not much of a debate up to that point. So this whole thing is your fault? If I get an obituary in the New York Times, uh, when the time comes, no doubt that article will be the lead. Well, I hope you're not thinking about that right now. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Sandy Levinson. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to convince you to vote against this motion, I want to introduce, ladies and gentlemen, David Kopel. And David, uh, you're research director at the Independence Institute, co-author of the first uh, law school textbook on the Second Amendment. And in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller, the landmark Supreme Court gun rights case, you were a member of the oral argument team. You are also a member of the NRA. You are also a member of the ACLU. 
how do you put dinner parties together? The, the trick is you make the pre-dinner prayer optional, and that makes the ACLU folks happy. And then you have a lot of sharp <laughs> knives around, and the, the NRA people are content. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, David Koppel, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, David, and, and your partner is? My partner is the genial genius, Eugene Volokh, perhaps the most important First Amendment scholar in the United States today. Ladies and gentlemen, Eugene Volokh. Eugene, uh, you're a professor of law at UCLA. Uh, The reason that you were just referred to as a genius is that according to the Tuscaloosa News profile done in 1981, when you were 12 years old and you were a sophomore at UCLA, uh, the newspaper reported that your IQ was 206. And you recoiled earlier when I told you I was going to bring that up. So I thought maybe we could talk about your credit score instead. On a good day, it's better than that. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Eugene Volokh and all of our debaters. On to round one. Opening statements by each debater, uninterrupted. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to persuade you to vote for this motion, let's welcome Sanford Levinson. Ladies and gentlemen. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Now, one reason I relish this statement is that I'm one of those relatively rare people, I will admit, who actually believe there should be a new constitutional convention because I believe that a number of provisions of the Constitution have outlived their usefulness. I wouldn't even say that the Second Amendment or the right to bear arms is the one that has most outlived its usefulness. But I'm really quite happy to argue that in 2013, the kinds of considerations that led to the placement of the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights have outlived their usefulness. So if we were going to have a debate in 2013 about what substantive rights as well as what structures, what would a 2013 or 2015 constitution look like? Would it include a substantive right in the United States Constitution to bear arms? And I would argue that the answer is no. So let me give you the two reasons why I think the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness in the 21st century. The first reason is precisely that it is anti-federal. Louis Brandeis spoke very eloquently of states as little laboratories of experimentation. Most states have chosen to experiment in favor of gun rights. There are some states or cities that would prefer different experiments. Or in New York itself, one can well imagine a particular policy for the great cities of New York and a very different policy for upstate New York where there are far, far more hunters than is the case in Manhattan, say. And one of the things that a single national constitutional amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, does is to stifle that kind of federalism. And I think that's a mistake. But there's a second real problem with constitutionalizing the right to bear arms in the 21st century. The right to bear arms had a kind of cosmetic value until 2008. 
It's not that people didn't write about it. I wrote about it. Eugene wrote about it. A number of people found it very interesting. But it played remarkably little role in actual American law. Beginning with Heller, it does play a role. But what does that mean? It means that you turn over decision-making power to a group of federal judges who are highly divided, who have no expertise in this area, who make often quite remarkable, even unreasoned distinctions. Thus, for example, in Heller, Justice Scalia says that Dick Heller is protected, which I think is a perfectly plausible argument, but he suggests that Martha Stewart is not because she actually lied to an FBI agent and is thus a convicted felon. I don't think judges should be making those kinds of decisions. I think legislators should. Thank you, Sandy Levinson. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness and now here to try to persuade you to vote against this motion. Eugene Bollock, he is the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA and founder and co-founder of the Volokh Conspiracy, one of the most widely read legal blogs in the country. Ladies and gentlemen, Eugene Volokh. So let me start with something I think we all agree on on the panel, and I think probably virtually everybody, perhaps everybody in the audience agrees on, too, and that is that there's a basic human right to self-defense. If somebody is threatening you with imminent death, serious injury, rape, kidnapping, you're entitled to use force, even deadly force, in order to defend yourself if that is necessary. But then there's the question, what does that right entail? And I want to argue that a right to self-defense, like other rights, entails the right, at least presumptively, to have the tools that are necessary to reasonably, effectively defend yourself. And guns are reasonably necessary to effectively defend yourself. Um, Our own bodies, you know, we sometimes can defend ourselves with that, but uh, not when our assailant is armed with a gun or otherwise. And even if unarmed, if the assailant is sufficiently big, sufficiently strong, sufficiently ruthless... The only way we can effectively defend ourselves in many situations is with a gun, often not by shooting it. The overwhelming majority of all defensive gun uses involve just threatening to use it. Now, some people may say, well, okay, fine, that's a, it's reasonable to say there's a presumption in favor of being able to have tools needed to defend yourself, but uh, maybe it should be rebuttable if there's solid enough evidence that uh, banning guns or seriously limiting guns would, un- would uh, protect us so much that that outweighs whatever loss to self-defense there may be, well, then we should do that. Well, interesting argument, but there is no such evidence. 2004, uh, the National Research Council appointed a uh, committee of um, uh, uh, scholars, of criminologists. Uh, They put out this very nice report. You can read it for free online. The, The consensus was There's no evidence that either extra gun ownership or extra gun restrictions uh, would would make people safer. Centers for Disease Control in 2005, similar study, similar result. But still, one could very reasonably ask this question as whether this makes sense. Well, I think the answer to that, you have to think practically. And you have to think about what is likely to be effective in our country given the political realities. And so for that, you have to ask yourself, what do you want? Now, if what you want, so you might want gun bans or handgun bans, or you might want modest gun controls, background checks, restrictions on mentally ill people, limits on size of large uh, capacity magazines. You have to decide what is it that you want. But if you want modest gun controls, the Second Amendment in court already doesn't stand in your way. Courts have routinely upheld against right-to-bear-arms challenges a wide range of modest gun controls. 
Uh, to be sure, those are hard to enact at the federal level and in many states, though not so hard in other states. But that's a political constraint, not a legal constraint. The Second Amendment is not a barrier uh, to the enactment of those gun controls. Some people think it should be, but as a descriptive matter, it actually hasn't been and isn't likely to be. But what's more, if you want modest gun controls, the Second Amendment is your friend. And any attempt to repeal it, that is what your enemy would be. So if you want modest gun controls, I'm not saying you should, but if you do, you should be arguing that the Second Amendment has not outlived its usefulness. Part of its usefulness, besides self-defense, is precisely the assurance it gives to people that people are not coming for their guns, as so many people, including the president, Thank you, have assured them. Thank you. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. The motion is, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Stay with us. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters arguing it out over this motion in two teams of two. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. We have heard two of the debaters, and now on to the third. Let's welcome to the uh, lectern uh, Alan Dershowitz. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard and best-selling author of 30 books, including Taking the Stand, My Life and the Law. Alan Dershowitz. Thank you. What a great and powerful argument. No wonder he's considered a genius. But let's think about his argument for a minute. The argument was really not so much in favor of the Second Amendment. It was in favor of the right of self-defense. You are right. We all agree there should be a right of self-defense. So don't you agree with me that it would have been better if the Second Amendment had been written as everybody has the right of self-defense? Then we could argue whether or not guns were necessary, what kinds of guns, what kinds of restrictions. You would also then have to debate whether or not guns were permissible for hunting because hunting is not part of self-defense. The Second Amendment reads rather differently. It starts out by saying a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state than the right of the people to bear and keep arms. So I think everybody would agree that the first clause of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, has outlived its usefulness. We do not have state militias. They are as anachronistic as the Third Amendment, talking about that we can't quarter troops. Now, that doesn't mean that I would want to amend the Bill of Rights. As long as we acknowledge that the Second Amendment, like the Third Amendment, has outlived its usefulness. I agree with you. Basic rights should be recognized by constitutions. Virtually every country in the world today recognizes the right of self-defense. Four countries in the world, Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, and the United States, I think, recognize the right to bear arms. So the vast majority of countries feel and believe that you can have a right of self-defense without necessarily having a fundamental right to bear arms. It seems to me that that's a relevant consideration. What do the four countries that have a right to bear arms have in common? What does Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, and the United States have in common? They all have extraordinarily high crime rates, extraordinarily high murder rates, extraordinarily high death rates. I don't want to get into the argument because I agree the statistics cut both ways. You can make arguments in favor of the fact that guns cause death, other arguments that guns prevent death. But look at the reality in a common sense way. Look at the fact that we are a country in 
infested with murder and death and gun injuries and suicide and accidents in the home. It cannot be a coincidence that the easy availability of guns in our country has nothing to do with high murder rates. That just can't be a coincidence. But at bottom, the question really comes to what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where we are forced to defend ourselves by guns, where the more the bad guys get guns, the more the good guys have to arm and get guns? If the answer to that question is no, let's acknowledge that the Second Amendment is anachronistic, has outlived its usefulness. Let's not abolish or amend the Second Amendment. Let's construe it reasonably to permit gun control, to limit the ownership of guns to the right of self-defense. Here, I'm going to go further than you. Perhaps also allow hunters to have limited access to guns. That's my position. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to argue against this motion, David Kopel. He is research director in, at the Independence Institute, an adjunct professor at Denver University's Sturm College of Law and associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Kopel. When I'm not in New York City, I spend just about all my waking hours in one particular case, in a civil rights lawsuit in federal district court in Colorado, where I represent 55 of Colorado's elected sheriffs who were suing against the unconstitutional, extreme, and highly immodest laws pushed down on Colorado by Mr. Bloomberg's successful lobbying last spring. In the United States Supreme Court, I presented briefs on behalf of a very large national coalition of law enforcement organizations in District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago. Included in that coalition are the two national organizations of police trainers. My clients, like the vast majority of law enforcement officers, according to every survey of law enforcement officers ever, ever done, strongly support the Second Amendment because they believe that guns in the right hands substantially enhance public safety. What's some of the evidence for this belief? Well, in the United States, when a burglary takes place against a home, 13% of the time, the victims are in the home. In contrast, in England, the rate of home invasion burglaries is 59%. In the Netherlands, it's 45%. And this is because, in the United States, people can lawfully own guns for self-defense in their home and have them readily available for self-defense in an emergency unlike in those other nations. The Centers for Disease Control is not a pro-gun propaganda organization. They conducted a national survey in 1994. They found that year there were 503,000 defensive gun uses against burglars, usually without a, in the United States, usually without a shot even being fired. And in 99% of the ca those cases, when the victim confronted the burglar, the burglar decided it was time to leave work early. Now, why is the Second Amendment necessary today to protect people from local bigoted governments? It was necessary in the civil rights era when civil rights workers frequently had to arm themselves in the South for protection against the domestic terrorist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan when local police were often complicit with the Klan. 
It's why the Deacons for Defense and Justice were formed in Bogalusa, Louisiana in 1965 to successfully provide armed protection to organizations such as the Congress of Racial Equality. It was necessary in Washington, D.C., where Dick Heller spent every day as an armed guard at the Federal Judicial Center and was not allowed to use any firearm in his home ever for lawful self-defense against a violent home invader. And it's necessary in New York City right now. If you have a handgun permit in New York City, you can go on a trip. You can drive from Brooklyn all the way to Seattle and lawfully carry that gun in, every, in, in your car in every state across the country, and it's a good, secure thing to have in case your car breaks down in the middle of the night someplace on a deserted road. But the New York City Police Department won't let you take the handgun out of the city. There is no rational basis for that prohibition. It is a dangerous law, and a Second Amendment lawsuit will likely be necessary to remove that. I urge you to vote against this deadly, dangerous proposition based on the recognition that today the Second Amendment remains vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Thank Thank you. you, David Kopel. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Now on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another and take questions from me and from you in the audience. We have two teams of two. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. The team that's arguing for this motion... Sandy Levinson and Alan Dershowitz. Uh, We have heard them argue that, number one, they're telling you that they're not here arguing to ban all guns, they're not here arguing to repeal the Second Amendment, but they are arguing that the uh, right to bear arms has no place in the Constitution. The team arguing against the motion, David Kopel and Eugene Volek, they say the right to self-defense is a basic human right, and so is uh, access to the tools needed to carry out and execute that right. And I want to go to the side that's arguing... Uh, against the motion, and to to bring to you something that your opponent, Alan Dershowitz, said, uh, in which he said, sure, you guys are arguing the right to self-defense. They concede that's a basic human right, but they also insist it's just not there in the language of the Second Amendment. It says right to bear arms, not the right to self-defense, and they say that's a difference. Which of you would like to take that on? The second, the second Amendment is the right to keep and bear arms. As Heller and McDonald say, it's the right to keep and bear arms for all lawful purposes. Self-defense, hunting, target shooting, it's not limited to self-defense. Certainly self-defense is the most important purpose of that right under Heller. But the Supreme Court didn't say that was the only purpose of the right. The right is for all lawful purposes. And modern constitutions, state constitutions, say so more explicitly, but their, their point is the same as the okay, Second so Amendment. Okay, so Alan Dershowitz, I, I think your opponent, David Coppola, is saying it's pretty obvious that's what everybody means by the right to bear arms. Oh, not right at all. I think the Second Amendment historically gives the right of the people the right to use guns against their government. Uh, as Jefferson said over and over again, we need to have armed citizens in the state to make sure that there are no monarchies trying to take over. Uh, it was a right of revolution. Uh, There was no debate, as far as I know, about uh, self-defense. It may have been implicit, but the Second Amendment's language, and many of the people who are the strongest supporters of the Second Amendment are literalists. They go to the original understanding. Why are you prepared to excise the first ten words from the Constitution? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Are you prepared to concede that a well-regulated militia is no longer necessary to the security of a free state? 
Uh, no. David Cook. Uh, you want a revolution. David Volek. Pardon? I'm no. sorry, Eugene Volek. I want neither. Huh? I want neither. Uh, so the, I think on this point, the court was quite right. Uh, that if you look at the way the word militia was understood, and actually remains a legal definition of the term, although not a common lay definition, militia meant the armed adult, at the time, male citizenry. And well-regulated meant basically well-functioning, well-trained. So really what they were saying is that an armed, well-functioning citizenry uh, is necessary to the security of a free state, and that because of that, the government shouldn't be able to disarm the people. But, but now, was, there's, the, was, the, the, was the point to defend the, the state or to defend your own home? Which, the point was both, and that is one of the things that the court, uh, I think, correctly So, here's, Alan, here's what you're overlooking. If you read things like Stephen Halbrook's The Founder's Second Amendment, very clearly they understood self-defense against a lone criminal and self-defense against a tyrannical government as the same thing, except the latter was larger in scale. It's all self-defense all the way up, all the way down. So what does well-regulated mean? What you're trying to do is now say that everybody who owns an individual gun has to be part of a regulated militia. They have to come to the green every day and march and well, do... Well, but, 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 no, they're not, the they're, but they're not saying right. that, Alan. They're not saying no. that. And I'm not taking sides, but I just want to bring clarity to it. I think that's a straw dog. I think they're saying that implicit in the fact that the, if there were a militia, that the guys have the guns in the house they, and they can also defend their house uh, and they need to have them to use them, whether we, their purpose was a militia or not. But we don't have a well-regulated militia now. We don't have any kind of militia now. So I think you're conceding that the first part of the amendment has outlived its usefulness. Thomas, we win at least the first half of the debate, right? <laughs> David Kopel, and I'd like you to respond to what he just said. Sure. Uh, Thomas Cooley, the greatest constitutional scholar of the latter 19th century, addressed your exact point, and he said that the interpretation you're following would defeat the purpose of the Second Amendment because that would mean the government, by neglecting the militia could thereby destroy the right to arms. We might have more public safety if there were something to encourage more regulated, well-trained citizen defense patrols, for example, in communities. Like the Ku Klux Klan. We can't can't force them to do that. Let me bring in Sandy. But the government's neglect does not destroy the underlying right. Sandy Levinson, I want to return to this issue of 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 the... where you basically were telling the other side that they don't really need to have this right enshrined in the Constitution and protected because the political process as it is is already tilting towards increasing gun rights. And I want you to take 30 seconds to push that point, and then I'd like to hear the response from your opponents because I think they said the opposite. Okay. 90% of the American public, rightly or wrongly, but 90% of the American public thought the Senate should at least take a vote on enhancing background checks. It never got to the floor of the Senate. Last night, I think um, the NRA invited people before the debate to chime in with their views, and I was told before we came out that the current vote is something like 43,000 against and seven. You mean on the Intelligence Squared website? Yes. Yes, um, we, 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 we experienced a blizzard of votes. Right. And um, uh, it's 46,000 against the motion and 700 for the motion. And it's, it, <laughs> the, the strongest argument for substantive constitutional rights is when you believe that a vulnerable, minor, vulnerable minority is likely to be victimized by what Americans learn to call the tyranny of the majority. Whatever your views are on gun control, 
at least right now and throughout most of American history, however many people own the 300 million guns, because most people who own guns, I think, own multiple guns, that they are comparable to Jehovah's Witnesses or some other vulnerable minority, that they need special concern of judges basically to make up public policy for the entire country. Okay. Constitutional rights are not only for persecuted minorities. I don't think ABC, CBS, the New York Times, and the New York Daily News are comparable to Jehovah's Witnesses either, and it's very important that there be a strong First Amendment to protect them. And unfortunately, there are in this large and diverse country, just about anything that you can say is nationally popular is going to be nationally unpopular with some local group of people who don't celebrate diversity and respect all rights. Uh, This is interesting. We're hearing an argument for diversity that would deny the people of New York the right to show their diversity by saying, we don't want to be like Montana. We would much prefer to have fewer guns. That argument is rejected in the name of Diversity? Diversity is not suppressing someone else's rights. That's no part of diversity. Diversity is respecting everyone's human rights fully. And respecting them from a point of view of the majority prevails when you have different views and different cultures and different societies and different attitudes and different approaches. And if the people of New York City have a different view from your view, why should they not have the right to express that view and have it implemented? Because Isn't there a right to a gun-free society as well? Why don't we have that? Is there a right to blasphemy? Is there a right to a blasphemy-free society? Is there a right to no? Because blasphemy doesn't hurt anybody. So, but but the whole point of individual rights are that they are trumps on uh, on because, as Sandy Levinson said, you need to have the right to blasphemy. Otherwise, the Jehovah's Witnesses will be prosecuted. The reason ABC and NBC have the First Amendment rights is we can't distinguish between them and the Jehovah's Witness handing out a leaflet. The basic right belongs to the Jehovah's Witness. The derivative me, right uh, belongs to ABC. I That's the only reason we have hold, hold everyone. Sandy Levinson is yeah. much too polite for this debate, so I'm going <laughs> to... I think we ought to be aware that there's something strange. Again, what everyone's views are about gun rights in the United States. There's something strange in referring to them as a human right. It really is quite remarkable that among the roughly 190 countries or so that are currently in the UN, there are a grand total of four that recognize some kind of constitutionalized right to bear arms, and you discover that the Mexico Constitution allows reasonable regulation. So it may be that there is something about American culture that recognizes that it's a right within the United States. It's part of American exceptionalism. Uh, that guns are treated much more seriously than anywhere else in the world. David Copeland, you'd like to respond to that? The United States is unique with its exclusionary rule against illegally seized evidence being used in court. We have much stronger rules against the uh, establishment of religion than, than most other countries do. But I think the fact that many countries have gone away from what was traditionally their respect for much of their history of the right to arms and of the right of self-defense does not denigrate that right from existing at all as a human right. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. We have four panelists, two teams of two, arguing this motion. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Stay with us.
Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. And I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Let's go to some questions from the audience. Thank you. This question is for those arguing against the motion. We talked about self-defense being a great spectrum from against personal security and also against the tyranny of the government. And we're also talking about how the Second Amendment in some circumstances is anachronistic. Can you let me know what it looks like today in the 21st century for someone to defend themselves with arms against the tyranny of the government? I'm not sure to what extent today a private gun ownership in a country like America would be effective in stopping government tyranny. I think there are plausible arguments. There, were, there used to be two main functions, one deterrence of government tyranny and one uh, assurance of self-defense. It's possible that today the first function is not really achievable, but the second function is very much out there. I don't see the right as having become obsolete if one aspect of it, given changes in the structure of the military and the security apparatus and changes in modern weaponry, uh, if, if that function is no longer uh, usable, I'm not sure, but it may very well not be. All right. the other I want to bring up another question to- right down. Um, very, very briefly, because okay. I want to get more I think more we're questions. dancing around the fact that there are at least thousands and maybe even a couple of million Americans who believe we do live in a tyranny and who are organized in militia movements and who want to drill and know how to use arms against the possibility of engaging in armed revolt. Now, do you support that as a protected Second Amendment right? That should be constitutional. I think probably would be. I mean, if it's actually a conspiracy, if it's a conspiracy to actually engage in revolution, no. No, just to drill. why don't you stand up? If you can tell us your name or at least your first name. Yes, hello. My name is Leah, and I have a question for all of you, really, is why do you think the Second Amendment was intended to protect the rights of Americans to rise up against a tyrannical government when Article 1 in the Constitution allows armed citizens and militias to suppress insurrections, not to cause them, the Constitution defines treason as levying war against the government in Article 3. I'm going to stop you there because you had a question mark after I the did. first part. I did. You know, I, I think there's a deceptively easy Sandy answer Levinson. to your question. The 1787 Constitution did not include uh, the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, as Alan would emphasize, is part of the Bill of Rights that were added in 1791 at the behest of people who really were very suspicious of this new national government that was created by the Constitution. And one could quote Emerson or Walt Whitman that the Constitution contains contradictions. Do you disagree enough with that to want to argue it, David Copel? Supreme Court Justice Story would disagree that there was a contradiction there, as he explained in his treatises. An insurrection is an illegitimate violent action against the government. But if the Second Amendment militias, led by their state governments, were ever necessary to overthrow a tyranny, that would not be an insurrection. Like the Civil War. That that would be... Like the Civil War, right? Let me talk, please. That would be a restoration of constitutional order. Uh, Alan, please. Was the Civil War legitimate? Was it a legitimate insurrection or an illegal insurrection? I I have have, uh, an answer to that. Uh, Which Civil War? 
Do you mean the civil war against the federal government or the civil war that was fought between 1775 and 1781 no, in the, the U.S.? the one that we all refer to so the, the civil answer war. Is, a guy so involving the, Abraham Lincoln. Remember that one? So the was answer, that a legitimate insurrection? That so was the, led by state militias. So the answer is that we think the question. Revolutionary War was legitimate, partly because we were we the ones won. on the willing side, but partly because we think it was a just insurrection. That we think the Civil War is legitimate because it was an unjust insurrection. But to return to your question, it's an excellent question. But if you look at the framing era documents and the post-framing documents, it was understood that while every government must be able to suppress revolutions against it, and it will, whether it's a tyrannical government or not, one merit that was seen at the time, again, I'm skeptical about it today, is it would preferably deter tyranny and, if necessary, overthrow it, recognizing that if it failed, it'll all be hung, hang for treason. That was understood. Uh, right there, man. Hi, my name is Stephanie, and I have a question. Um, does the Second Amendment protect the right to bear unsafe or unregulated firearms as a product, and what is the government's role in ensuring that firearms are safe to use, reduce accidents by young children and by minors? Thank you. Because when you mentioned Chicago, those are um, kids under the age of 21. Uh, Those things you mentioned are legitimate governmental purposes, and the question, if in pursuit of those legitimate governmental purposes, what are the particular laws which advance them? And do those laws significantly harm the ability of law-abiding people to use guns for lawful purposes? And you can, have, you can look at different laws on these subjects, and I'd say some fail the test and some pass the test. And I should just say, not a single Second Amendment decision or state de- or decision under any of the 44 state constitutional rights to keep and bear arms contradicts that or undermines uh, the, the safety f- uh, f- uh, issue that, uh, that, that you're raising. So if a um, state court imposes liability because a gun is prone to misfiring or something like that, the Second Amendment is not an obstacle well, to those kinds of things. Well, that's what you say, but just remember what oh, David said. David said that he's going to mount a Second Amendment constitutional challenge to New York's law that prevents you from taking your gun out of the state. So there's always the threat, if there's a constitutional amendment, that every regulation will be challenged. The NRA thinks everything is unconstitutional. Locks on guns, safety provisions for guns, making sure guns are stored properly. Everybody has to admit that if there is a constitutional amendment, The presumption is against regulation. That's why we ought not to constitutionalize this right. All right, sir. Uh, Name's Eric. So my question is that, uh, so on the campus where Staten Island College now sits was Willowbrook, where the state of New York interned the mentally ill children to die. If we believe that the right of self-defense is to protect vulnerable citizens, which you've all said, uh, is it not a violation of the civil rights of the mentally ill to bear arms? A a violation of their right to deny them the ability to bear arms? Justice Scalia, without presenting any argument, announced in Heller it apparently was the case that all laws limiting the rights of mentally ill people, a notoriously accordion-like term, could be limited. Uh, I presume that all of us agree there are some mentally ill people who shouldn't be allowed close to a gun. I would imagine that as a policy matter, not as a constitutional matter, all of us might well agree that there are some mentally ill people whom we would, in fact, allow to have a gun if we really do take self-defense very seriously. 
this, what you might want is legislature, city councils, et cetera, to write very careful legislation and tell us which is which, rather than to leave this up to judges who, quite frankly, have no training whatsoever in discerning differences of level of mental illness or have no training in trying to figure out what, if anything, the data actually support. Would the other side well, like to respond? And, and Sandy, that's David exactly what Justice Scalia's opinion does, is he basically says that in terms of gun bans for people who are mentally ill, that the Second Amendment, as he interprets it, is not going to intervene, and it's going to be left to the political process. But I would also I, I agree with you that the, the breadth of the current prohibition, I don't think uh, fully makes sense based on current understandings and social science. So there's a touch of agreement on this. All right, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. On to round three, closing statements. Each debater will make a closing statement in turn, uninterrupted. Our motion is this, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position against this motion, Eugene Volokh. He's professor of law at the UCLA School of Law. I want to end this on a cheerful note. I want to tell you about some good news. Uh, so from 1993 on, the, the size, the amount of guns in America increased from 200 million to probably about 300 million. Likewise, from the mid, in the mid-'80s, about 10 states, any law-abiding adult could carry a gun concealed. Uh, now that number is over 40. Uh, during that time, the homicide rate and the firearms homicide rate basically fell by a factor of two. The general violent crime rate and the um, gun violent crime rate basically fell by a factor of roughly three to four. I will tell you the number that was so shocking, I thought it was just nonsense spread on the Internet. But if it is, it's spread on the Internet by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. So that gives it some special claim as nonsense goes. Uh, so I, don't th- I think it's probably not nonsense. The serious violent crime with guns against youths age 12 to 17 fell by a factor of 20, by 95%. Now, I'm not saying that the growing gun stock caused that. There's actually a hot debate about that. I, I don't know what the right answer is. But it seems to have happened in spite of the growing gun stock. We'd think, if some of the arguments we've heard are correct, that the result would have been vast amount of bloodshed. It hasn't been. But something has caused a tremendous and sustained decline of crime. We should be looking to see what that was. It wasn't gun control. Maybe it wasn't gun decontrol. It was something. Thank you, Eugene Volek. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion to persuade you to vote for it, Sanford Levinson, author of Framed America's 51 Constitutions in the Crisis of Governments Governments, and a professor of government and professor of law at the University of Texas in Austin. Sanford Levinson. It's no surprise that my friend Eugene Bollock makes very, very powerful, eloquent arguments about the public policy of gun control. But that's not what we are debating this evening. The question is to what extent any particular policy should be constitutionalized, which at the national level means that it's close to written in stone. 
and impervious to any change in the future. And I really do think when you vote, that ought to be the principal question you're asking, not whether you believe a particular policy in 2013 makes sense, because if you constitutionalize it, you also have to say it's going to make sense in 2023, 2033, and ad infinitum. Secondly, I think David Kopel uses interestingly different language at different points in his argument. And he, too, has made very capable arguments. I don't know him so well as I know Eugene, so you shouldn't take anything amiss when I don't refer to him as my friend. I've known Eugene since he was a child, almost. (laughs) Um, at, At one point, David said that, I think it was Washington's policy, no rational person could agree with it. That was the New York City one. Uh, okay, it really doesn't matter. These are uninterrupted. Yeah, I really don't think it's a case that you have to be a lunatic to agree with Michael Bloomberg. But it seems to me that the rationality test, at least the way that lawyers use it, really does require that you believe the other side is truly lunatic. And Sanford Levinson, I'm sorry, okay. your time is up. And Thank you. Can disagree. Our, our, Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position against this motion, David Kopel, research director at the Independence Institute and associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Professor Dershowitz wants to relitigate the constitutionality of the Civil War. Well, that settled actually the question that we have for tonight in our political process. As of 1850, the Bill of Rights, as interpreted by federal courts, was only a limit on the federal government. And then we had the Civil War and the terrible violations of the rights of the freedmen that happened after the Civil War when the southern states abolished slavery in name but tried to keep the freedmen in de facto servitude by saying they could only have public assemblies when they got special permission and by saying they needed a special permission, if ever, that they could possess firearms for protection. And again, that was part of the Ku Klux Klan's strategy of disarming them. The country recognized that not only were the oppressions of the freedmen under these black codes, the new slave codes, human rights violations in themselves, but that the lack of civil liberty in the South had been one of the important causes of the war because it led to the suppression of speech, criticizing slavery, and poisoned the political dialogue there. And so the country said... We love diversity. We love the vastness of our country and the different state experimentations. But some experiments are so dangerous that they lead to catastrophe. And we tried the experiment of saying, we'll just leave it up to state governments to protect civil liberties. That's not enough. We need to set a national baseline on human rights. And the 14th Amendment was enacted to make the Bill of Rights, including especially the First and Second Amendments, applicable to the states. The baseline of the Second Amendment, it says everywhere that there are American citizens, every government must respect the baseline of the fundamental civil rights contained in our Bill of Rights. Thank you, David Kopel. Our motion, the constitutional right to bear arms, has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Alan Dershowitz, professor of law at Harvard Law School. I ask you to vote for the motion based largely on what Professor Volokh has brilliantly argued. He has conceded that he wouldn't include a militia 
in his model uh, uh, Bill of Rights. It seems to me that they have conceded away the basic argument, namely that the Second Amendment, as written, is anachronistic. What's left? What's left is, do we really want militia groups uh, that are armed today and armed under the Second Amendment to have the right to confront our government and try to conduct yet another revolution of the kind that we had back in the American Revolution and the Civil War? It seems to me the answer to that is quite clearly no. I don't want to amend the Bill of Rights because I worry that other things could happen. But I do want to make it very clear that the Second Amendment, with its emphasis on militias and hunting and with no mention of self-defense, has outlived its usefulness. Therefore, I urge you to vote yes, and let's begin a debate on whether we should have an amendment protecting the right of self-defense, not the right of guns. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat and to push the button that will register your vote. So while that's happening, what I'd like to do, uh, first of all, is say that uh, our goal in this... uh, Our goal in this debate was to touch on this topic, but in a way that maybe you've never heard it argued before and to have it argued well. And uh, I really think that we succeeded in doing that thanks to the spirit of of fairness and decency all of these debaters brought to the stage. So we have the final results in now. Our motion is this. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. You've listened to the arguments. We had you vote before the debate and again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So here are the results. Before the debate, on the motion, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness, 64% agreed with the debate. 18% were against, and 18% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember, you have to beat your starting number by more percentage points than your opponents. Here now are the results of the second vote on the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 74%. They went from 64% to 74%. They picked up 10%. That is the number to beat against the motion. Their vote now, their first vote was 18%. Their second vote was 22%. That's up only four percentage points. It means the team arguing for the motion has narrowly won this debate. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. That motion has carried. Our congratulations to all of our debaters, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.